Well, continuing on with redemption accomplished and applied, we're now in the application section of our study, and we're moving right along. Um, last time we established that effectual calling is the first personal act of redemption's application. That is to say that uh, the application properly uh, begins with election, begins with God's act before the foundation of the world. But we made the distinction that election as such is not a personal, individual act of the Holy Spirit working in our unique hearts, right? So when we talk about the, the application of redemption in that sense, we must begin with effectual calling. And in the effectual call... God summons us into fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to. But fellowship with Jesus Christ is a moral and spiritual impossibility for sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Can't have fellowship with a dead man. Uh, Romans 8.8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that is not the language of permissibility. That's the language of ability. It's not that they don't have permission to have fellowship with God. No, they're called to have fellowship with God. It's that they don't have the ability to have fellowship with God. So there's a great contradiction then between the nature of God's effectual call and the nature of those who receive the call. The question is, the contradiction is, how can unholy sinners respond to a holy calling? Remember the the three H's when we were defining the effectual call? It's a high, holy, and heavenly call. Well, how can sinners who are low, earthly, and dead in their sins respond to a high, holy, and heavenly call? Well, we answered the question on a very surface level last week. Do you remember how we answered it? Why is the effectual call effectual? Because it is accompanied with the power to respond. I know you knew that. You just wanted to be really humble. (laughs) But the the effectual call, it is effectual because accompanied with the effectual call uh, is the power to, to respond. And we use the illustration of a courtroom, right? You might be summoned to go to court. And that hat that that summons has the authority to to compel you to appear, but it does not have the effectual power to ensure that you will appear. Uh, You have to appear on your own free will, or they'll have to send an officer of the law to help you comply. Uh, But but the effectual call of God is not like that. It doesn't need anything else other than its own intrinsic efficacy for you to respond to it. But now as we move on to the next act in the Ordo Salutis, we will more deeply explore this grace, and it's really the grace of regeneration that is in the effectual call, which solves this great contradiction. So again, the question, how can unholy sinners respond to a holy calling? The answer is, they can't unless God effects a radical and pervasive change within them that imparts the ability to respond. And in regeneration, that's exactly what God does. 
you can see from the etymology of the word, by the way, I like the etymology of words. That simply just means you look at a word and you look at the root word, you look at its language of origin, you look at the prefixes and the suffixes and, and how they come to be, and a lot of times you'll see some, some really interesting correlations between words when you look at their etymology and you'll realize, wait a minute, this word and this word have a, a lot in common and I didn't see that before until I looked at the etymology. So if you looked at, at the etymology of regeneration, you'll see uh, that the root word in regeneration is the word generate, right? Generate, which means to cause or to produce something especially as it pertains to life. What, what, is it, what is natural generation? When we talk about natural generation, we're talking about what? Childbirth, right? Birth. We talk about generations. You know, uh, you'll read in the Bible, the generations of so-and-so, right? And, and that gives us the word what? Genealogy, right? It all comes from this same word. So to cause or to produce, especially as it pertains to life, and then it has this prefix, re. What does that mean? We see that on a lot of words. It means what? Again. Sometimes it means again and again and again, but sometimes it just means again. Repeat, right? Um, how come we never, we never when, we, when we speak, we never say peat, right? Let me, let me peat this to you. No, we never say that, but we'll say repeat. Um, You'd know the answer to that if you studied the etymology of repeat. So the definition then of regeneration simply is what? To cause or produce again. So there was, a, there was something caused or produced, and then in regeneration, it's produced again. And in theology, the theological definition of, of regeneration is the causing again, or the reproduction of spiritual life. So, the, the causing again, or the, the reproduction of spiritual life. And now, there's a number of ways that I could tackle uh, the doctrine of regeneration, but uh, the simplest uh, way, and probably the most helpful in this context, is simply to walk you through a passage of Scripture that highlights and uh, emphasizes uh, the doctrine of regeneration. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3 contains the most detailed teaching on regeneration in any one portion of Scripture. Now, um, let me just give a, 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 a discursus on, on a few things as it pertains to theology, biblical theology, systematic theology. The first I want you to understand uh, is, is something called the word concept fallacy, which means uh, if the word's not there, then we can't talk about it. Well, that's, that's not true. If the concept is there, we're free to use a word that adequately defines and identifies that concept. So... The word regeneration is not in John 3. A very synonymous term is, and we'll see that 
Jesus will use that multiple times, but the concept is there. In fact, the word regeneration in your English Bible, if you have a King James or a New King James, only appears two times, and in fact, only one of those times actually refers to regeneration, as we're talking about it. The other time is uh, somewhere in, oh, I don't want to quote it, I'll get it wrong, somewhere in Matthew, um, maybe somebody can find it before this is over with, where Jesus talks about in the regeneration, but what is he talking about? He's talking about, he's talking about in the resurrection at the end of the at the end of the uh, the eschaton, so to speak, which that will be a regeneration, right? A resurrection, a regeneration, um, but it's not the doctrine of regeneration as we understand it in soteriology. And then the other time, we'll see Paul uses the word regeneration once in one of his epistles, and we'll see that in our lecture tonight. So uh, just beware in general of the word concept fallacy. Okay, just because the, the word's not there, if the concept's there, it's more than proper for us to speak of regeneration. Uh, and the other thing that I want you to see is, is the nature of systematic theology. Systematic theology uh, requires us to distill from the whole testimony of Scripture, the whole testimony of Scripture, to form doctrine. For, for practically any biblical doctrine, there is no one portion of Scripture that exhaustively teaches all God has to say about it. The same is true in John 3. John 3 does not give us all that God has to say about the doctrine of regeneration. So we're going to use Scripture to interpret Scripture in John 3. And so as we go through John 3, verses 1 through 8, I'll ask you to turn to a few different places that will shed light on this conversation. So let's just pick up in verse 1, and, and again, I'll just walk through this text. John 3, verse 1, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. It's very important to know who Jesus is speaking with in this text. Not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, he was the most prominent teacher in Israel. That's extremely important, and it's important even in the context of the doctrine of regeneration. We'll see that. Um, the, the, the little details in the Bible, we can make too much of them. We sure can. And we see uh, people that do that. But if we rightly understand them in context, they can often help us tremendously understanding the bigger picture of what God is trying to communicate. So we see here that, that, that Nicodemus is not only a Pharisee, he's the most prominent teacher in Israel. What does that tell us about Nicodemus? Just tell me some things that we now know about him. He knows the scriptures. He is intimately familiar with the Old Testament. Right. Intimately. What else about the Pharisees? What did they think about themselves in terms of their relationship with God? <laughs> yeah, they were better than everybody. They were right with God. So Jesus is talking to someone intimately familiar with the Old Testament, and also extremely confident in his right standing with God, which that in and of itself is a little ironic, right? Because I don't know about you, but the more I read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the more I realize, apart from Jesus Christ, I am helpless, right? Um, it, 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 this isn't what this lecture is about, but it, it, that's one of the things that's always just amazed me uh, with the Pharisees, intimately familiar with the law of God, 
intimately familiar with the Old Testament, and yet they thought that by their own works, they had earned a righteousness that God would accept. Well, maybe that's a a lesson for another day. Okay, so now, verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. A few things here. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Why? Well, probably to avoid being seen by other Pharisees. Uh, he didn't want his colleagues to know that he was visiting Jesus. He, he, he didn't want his colleagues to know uh, that he was having this conversation. The, the real crux of the Pharisees was their own spiritual pride. He's admitting what they know. That they know Jesus is sent from God. They know that, that, that God is upon him, right? Uh, but yet, we see that he doesn't want to admit that publicly. Now, he acknowledges the remarkable nature of Jesus' ministry, but notice what he doesn't do in verse 2. What he doesn't do in verse 2, at least as John records it, is ask a question. doesn't ask a question. He makes a statement. And if you don't understand the character and the deity of Jesus Christ, you don't understand what Jesus is about to do in verse 3. So what Jesus is about to do in verse 3 is something he does frequently in his ministry. That is, he sees he sees the true heart problem of Nicodemus and he puts his finger on the pulse, so to speak, and he answers the question that Nicodemus didn't have enough sense to ask. And so, in verse 3, Jesus says this, Jesus answered and said to him, again, there's no question, but Jesus says, most assuredly, or verily, or truthfully, or amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Where does that come from? Nicodemus didn't say anything about seeing the kingdom of God. He's in the kingdom of God. He's a Pharisee, right? Well, no, Jesus knows Nicodemus better than Nicodemus knows Nicodemus. And he then moves into this discussion on the necessity of regeneration. So he says, unless one is born again. What does that sound like? Born again. Sounds like regeneration, right? We see the prefix again. We see the generate, born. So even though the word regeneration is not in our text, we clearly see uh, that, that, that regeneration is present. To be regenerated is to be reborn. So we talk about the new birth, we're talking about regeneration. The truth that Jesus consistently stresses in this passage is the absolute necessity of regeneration to enter the kingdom of God. To to, to see the kingdom, to enter the kingdom are really synonymous because he's not talking about seeing it with the physical eye, nor is he really talking about it entering it with a physical body, not in this age anyways, but to see the kingdom or to enter the kingdom is to have access to the kingdom as a citizen by faith, right? Jesus says, unless you're born again, unless you're regenerated, you can't do that. Now notice in verse 4 how, how Nicodemus responds Nicodemus responds, Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Uh, there, there are a few different opinions on how we should understand Nicodemus' reply in verse 4. Some say that Nicodemus was genuinely confused and took Jesus' statement in a woodenly literal sense. In other words, Nicodemus understood Jesus to be saying, in order to be saved, in order to see the kingdom, you have to literally enter into a womb and be born a second time. But Nicodemus, we've already seen, was a a smart man. The more likely interpretation of Nicodemus' response is that he picked up on Christ's figurative language and he responds with some figurative language of his own. So he he picks up, he says, okay, Jesus is speaking figuratively. I'm going to ask a question entering in to the same figurative dialogue. After all, the rebirth that Jesus speaks of is not a literal birth. It's a spiritual birth, right? So he says, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Another clue here in the context uh, that that Jesus is not, or that Nicodemus is not taking Jesus to be woodenly literal, is is that Jesus in verse five does not properly answer his question. He doesn't say to him, Nicodemus, you fool. I'm speaking figuratively, right? He just continues on. So in verse five, Jesus says this: Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus repeats and reaffirms the necessity of the new birth to enter the kingdom of God. Um, you remember the story of George Whitfield, very famous story. George Whitfield is street preaching, and he's just over and over saying again, ye must be born again, ye must be born again. And woman comes up to him and says, preacher, why are you just saying ye must be born again? And he says, because, dear woman, ye must be born again, right? It's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's reaffirming the necessity of the new birth to enter the kingdom of God. But in verse 5, he adds further explanation of what this birth is and what specifically it accomplishes. Okay, So what is it and what does it accomplish? Jesus' reference to water in verse 5 has no shortage of arguments as to what he's talking about. Um, What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Um, the, the spirit part is, uh, is the easier of the two to, to understand and to interpret. But what's the deal with this born of water? Well, I don't want to be too pedantic, but I, I, let me sketch for you. Let me give you some faulty views of what it means to be born of water. Uh, I think I have three of them. And I'm going to give them to you in the order of least plausible to most plausible. Because some of them just... One of them particularly really makes no sense. Uh, one of them has had some traction, but is very dangerous. And then one of them almost sounds right, but I don't quite believe that's what Jesus is thinking about. Okay, the first one is that when Jesus says to be born of water, he's simply referring to a natural birth. So Jesus is saying, you must be born the first time, and you must be born again. And they say that this water here refers to the amniotic fluid that surrounds a baby in the womb and comes out when the baby is born. Okay, um, This interpretation, I guess technically, is not wrong. 
I mean, in order to be born again, you must be born first. Um, so the theology is not wrong. The interpretation is. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about there. For a number of reasons, um, it's, it's absolutely redundant. It, it, it says absolutely nothing because it's, it's common sense that, of course, you must be born the first time before you can be born again. But it's, it's purely conjecture. There's nothing in this passage or really anywhere else in Scripture that indicates that this is the view. Right? No, nowhere do we see our natural birth associated with our spiritual birth in such a way. Okay, so, um, not, not necessarily incorrect in its content, but not what Jesus is talking about. Secondly, and this is a, a, an interpretation that has, has been picked up in church history by a number of groups, and that is that John 3.5 is a reference to baptism. Okay? So, those who hold to some form of baptismal regeneration, you can see why it's called that, obviously favor this view for obvious reasons. And they'll say that this text is teaching that in order for you to be saved, you must be born of the Spirit, but you also must receive the ordinance of water baptism. But if Jesus was referring to the ordinance of water baptism, then this text would indeed unequivocally teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. But there is something in, in biblical interpretation called the analogia uh, fide, or the analogy of faith, which teaches this. teaches that when we have a portion of Scripture that is more obscure, we are to interpret that portion of Scripture in light of other portions of Scripture that are much more clear, and not only other portions of Scripture, but other established doctrines. So, if one was coming to this narrative conversation, this dialogue, and sees this rather obscure reference to water, I say it's obscure because Jesus makes no attempt in this conversation to define what he means, and they said, aha, maybe this refers to baptism. Well, the logical question would then be what? Is there any established portion of Scripture that clearly and unambiguously teaches that water baptism is necessary for salvation? Not only is the answer to that question no, <laughs> we, would, we would have to say that no, there's actually clear, unambiguous, explicit teaching that man is saved apart from any works, apart from any performance of religious rite or reception of religious ordinances. So there's no textual support for this verse being in any way a reference to water baptism. Um, also, we, and now, as we get to the, to the proper interpretation, also you have to think about Nicodemus as a, as a Jew would have n no real concept other than from John the Baptist, no real concept of the, the ordinance of water baptism as it's kept in the church today in the New Testament. So, um, now... What separates this view from the first view is that this view is actually very dangerous if you, if you see baptism in, in this view. So somebody thinks that John 3, 5 is a reference to the natural birth. I just kind of go, nah, whatever. I don't think you're right, but whatever. But if somebody says, I think John 3, 5 is a reference to baptism, then I have to say, okay, we need to have a talk. <laughs> because now you're not only wrong, you're dangerously wrong. Okay, So uh, it's not referring to baptism. Thirdly, now, this is a plausible view, and uh, it's one that I can see how people get there, but I don't think that, that 
Jesus is referring to this, and that is that the word, or that, that the water there is a reference to the word. Hmm. Admirable view, but doesn't fit theologically. Okay, you say, but, but there are portions of Scripture that teach that the word is the ordinary means through which or by which God accomplishes our regeneration. First Peter one and verse twenty three, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Why can't this be the word? Because we have to make a careful distinction between the instrument of regeneration and the effective agent of regeneration. And we have to make a distinction between the instrument of regeneration and regeneration itself. What or... Who is the effective agent of regeneration? Who regenerates? The Holy Spirit Spirit regenerates. Now we can talk about what he uses to regenerate. He uses the word. But the word itself is not regeneration. How do I know that? Because one can possess the word of God and read it and study it and hear it preached But if the Spirit doesn't use the Word, man will never be born again. On the other hand, if anyone has the Spirit of God, they are regenerated, are regenerate, right? So, admirable view, but but not quite what Jesus is, is getting at. Now, the correct interpretation of water in verse 5 must be one that fits the context and the theology of the passage. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to a Pharisee intimately familiar with the Old Testament. You say, how familiar was a Pharisee with the Old Testament? This familiar. That in order to be a Pharisee, he would have had, and being a ruler of the Jews, he would no doubt have had the entire Old Testament memorized. There is a passage in the Old Testament that serves as a mirrored counterpart to verse 5. Jesus makes no attempt to define water in verse 5, which tells us what? He assumed that his audience, in this case Nicodemus, knew exactly what he was talking about. And I believe when I show you this passage in the Old Testament, you will see, oh yes, that is clearly what Jesus was talking about. Hold your place in John 3 and come with me to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. The the verses I really want you to see are verses 25 and 26. For context, let me pick up at verse 23. Notice what God says through his prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 23. And I will sanctify my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in, in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out all countries, out of all countries, bring you into your own land. Now listen to this. Tell me if you see John 3, 5, water and the Spirit in these two verses. Verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. You see water in the spirit there? So, first century Pharisee, ruler of the Jews, here is born of water in the spirit. I think we can safely assume that his mind would have gone to Ezekiel 36. And what we learn when we consider these passages together is that regeneration affects a change on the heart of a sinner that both purifies and renovates. So what is he talking about when he says water and the Spirit? I'm arguing that water and the Spirit represent the two aspects of regeneration. There is a purification and there is a renovation. Water, in the religious sense of the Old Testament, carried the implication of making something clean or purifying the object of its application. The Old Testament had ritual cleansings that the Jews would do. Right? In regeneration, God washes away our old corruption and uncleanness and imparts to us the purity of a newness of life. Regeneration, brothers, is not God helping us out a little bit to get to heaven. Regeneration is not God giving us a few things that we lacked. Regeneration is not God doing His part after we've done our part. Regeneration is God taking a dead, lifeless, depraved wretch of a sinner and breathing in them a new life that they did not previously possess. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's regeneration. Regeneration is life from the dead. Regeneration is the resurrection of a sinner who is deceased in his depravity. It's something only God can do. Something only the Holy Spirit can do. And Jesus is drawing from this Old Testament truth to explain what must happen in order for a sinner to be saved. It's not just that he needs a little bit of reformation and a few changes in his behavior. He needs a new spiritual life. That, a, a new life and a new heart that love God and desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you've seen the Old Testament. You've seen the Old Testament uh, uh, allusion here. Let me show you a New Testament allusion. And, and really, again, like I said, what I'm trying to do is, is, is give you a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of insight to biblical theology. So, so what we have in, in, uh, in, in biblical theology is we have an Old Testament, which is the preparation, because the whole Bible is what? The whole Bible is all about the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel and what He has accomplished. And the Old Testament is, is a preparation. Notice in Ezekiel, it's, it's future tense. Uh, it's, He will do this, He will do this, He will do this, Right? Old Testament is preparation. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the presentation, right? They're the presentation of here it is. Here's what we've been preparing you for. And the epistles are the explanation. If all you had was the Old Testament and the epistles, you'd have no idea how we got there, right? But if you have the Gospels and the book of Acts, right? If you have the Gospels and the book of Acts, you see how the the redemptive plan of God has progressed from Old Testament Israel 
through Jesus in his earthly ministry and now is being explained in the epistles. And notice the different tenses from Ezekiel and Paul in Titus 3. Titus 3. And, and also notice, tell me if you see water and spirit again. Renovation or purification, renovation. Titus 3, and let me read verse 4 and 5. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Now, is that future tense? No, that's past tense. So Ezekiel saying, it's going to appear. Paul in Titus says, it has appeared. When did it appear? When Jesus appeared in the Gospels. When the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Past tense, he did it. He saved us through the, notice, washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Born again of water, washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, water and spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, Ezekiel gives us the preparation. John gives us the presentation. Really, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us the presentation. And then Paul gives us the explanation. Is that nice? Is that good? Does that help you as you're reading your Bible? So we see here uh, that Paul clearly teaches the doctrine of regeneration. And we see that that, that this, is, this is why I... I have my, my interpretation of water and spirit because it's the interpretation that's consistent with Ezekiel, with Paul, and with what Jesus is saying in John. Okay, So that's John 3 and verse 5. This dichotomous nature of regeneration. There's a washing, a purification, and a renewal, a renovation. Okay, uh, Verse 6. Notice, we'll move on quickly here. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh, back in John 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What is Jesus saying here? Simply, he's saying this. There is no in-between when it comes to regeneration. No one is half flesh and half spirit. Half alive, half dead. Those who are of the flesh are dead in their trespasses and sins. Those who are of the Spirit are indwelt and directed by the Holy Spirit. There's no middle ground. You're either alive or you're dead. You're not in the process of becoming alive. You're not half alive, half dead. You're either alive or dead. Now, again, we have to be careful with our theological categories. Um, when, you, when you are regenerated, you still have the flesh, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. You're no longer of the flesh, is what he's saying here. And then in verse 7, you have to imagine Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, and you have to imagine the look on his face when Jesus says this in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So what does that mean? Apparently Nicodemus was marveling, standing there looking like, What are you saying to me, Jesus? Don't you know I'm a Pharisee? Don't you know that I keep the law? Don't you know that I'm one of God's people and here you are telling me that I have to have this radical heart transformation? And one of the reasons why I love the King James here is because Jesus says, marvel not that I said to thee, ye must be born again. So I'm not, it's not just you, Nicodemus. It's everyone must be born again. Plural. What Jesus is saying here is that apart from regenerating grace, 
all of our religion and all of our good works and all of our acts of worship get us nowhere apart from regeneration. We don't fully grasp how extreme Jesus' statement is to Nicodemus. This would be like going up to the most prominent, well-known pastor of the most prominent, well-known church who's been in the ministry his whole life and telling him, all your preaching, all your studying, all your service is worthless. You are lost, and unless you are born again by the Holy Spirit, you will bust hell wide open when you die. And you can imagine if you were to say that, and don't, by the way, don't say that. You're not Jesus, okay? But Jesus knew the heart of Nicodemus. But you can imagine the shock that would have come over Nicodemus' mind. And then in verse 8 he goes on, and he gives this picture. Now he's, he's, he stressed what regeneration is. Now in, in verse 8, he's going to conclude his teaching on the new birth by emphasizing the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Notice he says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We cannot command or instruct the wind. We certainly would like to. You know, it's uh, winding down to the end of summer and fall is coming. And you know what that means? Weather starts changing. Uh, over the next few months, we're probably going to have a, a day where the temperature is going to drop 20 degrees. And then woo, 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 we're going to have tornado warnings and all of these different things. And how wonderful it would be if we could just command the wind to blow a different direction. But the wind does whatever the wind wants to do, Right? And Jesus is saying, so too does the Spirit move in regeneration according to the pleasure of His own sovereign will. We don't command the Spirit. In fact, we are entirely passive in regeneration. You can think of the wind analogy. Uh, the home that is destroyed by the tornado is entirely passive. It didn't ask for the tornado, it didn't beckon the tornado. But you can also think of this same, this same analogy in terms of our generation. We don't contribute anything to our first birth, and we don't contribute anything to our second birth. Uh, no, no baby in the womb ever said, Hey mom, hey dad, I think that January 5th, 2023 would be a great date to be born. Right? And that doesn't happen. John Murray says this, quote, if it were not the case that in regeneration we are passive, the subjects of an action of which God alone is the agent, there would be no gospel at all. For unless God, by sovereign operative grace, had turned our enmity to love and our disbelief to faith, we would never yield the response of faith and love. So regeneration is like the wind. Um, <laughs> a number of years ago, Billy Graham wrote a book, How to Be Born Again. Well, the problem with that book is that the Bible nowhere tells us how to be born again. We don't birth ourselves again. You know, it's not, you do this, you do this, you do this, then you're born again. No, the Spirit of God is the one who regenerates. I'll, I'll, I'll get to a practical application in a moment. Because you might be sitting there thinking, well, if it's all up to the Spirit, then what, what's our responsibility? Well, let me ease into that with this question. How do you know when the wind blows? 
You can't see the wind. But you can see the effects of the wind on what it blows. Isn't it amazing how a tornado can obliterate a house to sawdust, but the house right next door, 20 feet away, not even so much as a cracked window. Is that not how the Holy Spirit saves sinners? As the gospel is preached, think about it in a, in a church service, as the gospel is preached, God begins to, I've seen it from the pulpit, God begins to work on the heart of a sinner and you see, you see weeping and you see, you see obviously God is dealing with them and then someone sitting next to them is falling asleep. Why is that? It's because regeneration is the sovereign work of the Spirit. So if we can't birth ourselves again, and if we can't even force the Spirit to birth anyone again, what is there for us to do? Earnest, sincere, faithful prayer that God would be pleased to bless us and bless our churches with regenerating grace. We know what He uses. He uses the Word. He uses the gospel. He uses the preached word of God. We know what he uses. What's our responsibility, in a sense? And we're really, we can't even do this apart from God's grace. Our responsibility is to ensure that the faithful, true word of God is being preached. That's all I can do as a preacher. That, that's, that's, that's my responsibility. I'm, I'm not going to answer to God for how many people were regenerated under my ministry but I will answer to God for how faithfully I preach the gospel. So as we preach the gospel, as we evangelize in the community, we pray, Lord, use this move in regenerating grace. And we preach to sinners, repent and believe the gospel. I don't tell, you don't tell sinners, birth yourself again. No, you say, repent and believe the gospel. And if they repent and believe the gospel, what is that? That's proof, evidence, that the wind is blown. That they've been regenerate. Regenerated, right? When you see a house flipped upside down on its roof, you know that the wind has been blowing. Well, when you see a sinner whose life has been turned upside down, and all of a sudden they have a love for Jesus Christ, they have a love for the things of God, they have a hatred for sin, you know that the Spirit has been at work in regenerating grace. Let me conclude here by showing you some pictures of regeneration. Um, Again, remember, and this is really a great way to illustrate this truth because it's the same guy who wrote this gospel. He also wrote some epistles. So I believe, I have no real way of proving this to you, but I believe the verses I'm going to quote to you, John was intimately thinking about this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus when he wrote these verses. In 1 John, look there if you can. In 1 John, there's a few, few texts. Notice in these verses that regeneration is the effective cause of everything that follows. 1 John 2 and verse 29. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. If someone practices righteousness, it is only because they have been born again by the Holy Spirit who is righteous. Cause and effect. Regeneration is the cause. Practicing righteousness is the effect. 1 John 3 and verse 9. Whoever has been 
born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. This does not teach sinless perfection. It's talking about sinning as a way of life. He's not walking in sin as a way of life because he's been, what, born of God. When you see someone fighting against sin, striving not to walk in sin, you're seeing the evidence of regeneration. But when you see someone who lives in sin, has a lifestyle characterized by sin, you're seeing someone, no matter what church they go to or what Bible they read or how, how many religious acts of worship and service they do, you're looking at someone who needs to be born again. It's been said that the, the, the pews of the American church are the greatest mission field in this country because we have so many people who... Sunday after Sunday, they go to church, they, they, they might even read their Bible a little bit throughout the week, and they, they do these, these acts, but they need to be born again. Just like Nicodemus. You say, well, you can't be religious and lost. <laughs> Just like Nicodemus. By the way, I think we have good confidence to, to know that Nicodemus did understand what our Lord was saying, because I think it's John 19 and verse 11 where we see Nicodemus with the disciples. So, not only uh, did Nicodemus hear this teaching about regeneration, but the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly, but it gives us good reason to believe that he was born again, eventually. 1 John 4, verse 7. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves God is born of God and knows God. And then in 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. What, what, what is this telling us? This is telling us that only those who are born again love God. And if you love God, you'll love those who are begotten of God other born-again believers. So, uh, our love for God and our love for the brethren are fruits of our regeneration. When God regenerates us, He gives us a heart that is capable of loving Him. One more, 1 John 5, 18. 1 John 5, 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. Mm. and the wicked one does not touch him. Regeneration, this is John Murray, regeneration is the logical and causal explanation of abstinence from sin and freedom from the touch of the evil one. doesn't mean that Satan's not going to try to ensnare you, but it means that he will not overcome you. He's, he, you're not under his dominion of darkness. Well, I hope you see how all-encompassing and radically transformative is the grace of regeneration. Paul describes it again in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Before we can love God, serve God, or even believe in God, we must be made new by God in the grace of regeneration. And next time, we, we, we'll look at uh, the, the chief fruits of regeneration, which, it, which are uh, the elements of conversion, faith, and repentance. And we'll focus in on this vital truth that 
faith must be preceded by regeneration. And I, I, I trust that the way we've set up this study, um, having started with the accomplishment of, of redemption and then gone step by step through the effectual call and now regeneration, I trust that you'll see that, of course, regeneration must precede faith. There could be no other way. Regeneration must come before we can believe. That's what John tells us in 1 John. He that believes does so because he is born of God. So we'll pick up next time.